ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tom Deckon Hyman Show. I'm Tom and I'm flying solo today. And on this show, I'll be giving Ruby Wax a piece of my mind. Since I went to a one-woman stage show, frazzled. I'll also be venting one spleen about the fake outrage and faux apologies surrounding that Kathy Griffin photo. But to get the show rolling, akin to a severed head, let's talk about how Theresa May's honeymoon period has well and truly come to an end. just been to Buckingham Palace where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government and I accepted. In David Cameron I follow in the footsteps of a great modern Prime Minister. From the introduction of same-sex marriage to taking people on low wages out of income tax altogether, David Cameron has led a one-nation government and it is in that spirit that I also plan to lead. Theresa May there, giving her, I'd call it like an inauguration speech for becoming Prime Minister. Now, typically newly elected politicians have what's called a honeymoon period. Apologies for the Americanism, but that's an extended period of time where they generally are favoured amongst the public. Especially as opposed to the opposition that they just defeated now, when Theresa May became Prime Minister last year, after winning the Tory leadership election pretty much by default, when all her competitors, one by one, dropped out of the race, making her look like the only respectable MP they actually had, she'd already had several years under her belt as a largely unsuccessful Home Secretary, and yet she still got her honeymoon period. And I think this is largely due to the fact there was a big political shock called Brexit, it was a real shock to the system, and the British public were looking for something, some sort of stabilising force, and they sort of projected that pretty much onto Theresa May. Of course, actually, in her inauguration speech, she um, she dropped the line, Brexit means Brexit, on the public. And of course, that pretty much meant, I mean, I translated that as basically, shut the fuck up about the referendum, just stop asking us to show our hand in the negotiations, just leave it to us, leave it to our trays. Now, the fact that we've got a female prime minister, a second female prime minister, who's basically going to battle with the European Union, the comparisons with Margaret Thatcher began almost immediately. I'd say largely due to historical ignorance and a real lack of imagination. There's probably, there's probably a prime minister out there that resembles Theresa May more than Margaret Thatcher does, and vice versa. But they're both women, so the press and printed the same characteristics of Thatcher onto May including the idea of uh, this being some sort of Amazonian-esque warrior going to battle with the European Union, which I think aided her popularity in the early goings. She was kind of talking tough about it. But despite the immediate comparisons, I would say Theresa May, she's not really a Thatcherite. She kind of insists otherwise. People always accuse her of distancing herself from Thatcher and trying to distance the Tory party from Thatcherism. But for me, I think outside of the one-nation rhetoric, Theresa May strikes me as having a slightly more egalitarian, though still somewhat kind of uh, Catholic-inspired distributism. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was heavily about individualism, or at least that's what people say about her now. I don't know really if that was 100% true. Maybe there's been some historical revisionism there. But Theresa May is not really about individualism at all. I mean, there was a bit in the manifesto where she outright rejects individualism as being selfish. The distributist position is sort of more communitarian, but it comes from an old school Catholic agrarian society. And um, it's, you know, it's quite liberal, fairly pro small state government. 
and just letting the people society deal with problems itself. They don't really want revolution in the traditional left-wing sense. They want a rejuvenation of Catholicism, a return to a time when the t- Catholic worldview was dominant. Now, here's Theresa May getting questioned over this very point about the Tory manifesto being a departure from Thatcherism. Um, just picking up on Jason Grove's questions, it is occasionally said that it's difficult to define what is meant by Mayism. But if you turn to page nine of your manifesto, it says that you reject the cult of selfish individualism and you regard rigid dogma and ideology as dangerous. That sounds like a rejection of Thatcherism. So is Mayism a rejection of Thatcherism? And are you personally rejecting the many comparisons between you and Margaret Thatcher? There is no Mayism. I know you journalists like to write about it. There is good, solid conservatism, which puts the interests of the country and the interests of ordinary working people at the heart of everything we do in government. Thank you. Yeah, so she used the One Nation rhetoric and dodged the question pretty much, and that's a trait of Theresa May that's currently landing her in hot water, the fact she doesn't really like being scrutinised by either the press or the public. I feel a little bit for Theresa May here, because any sort of Tory party leader, prime minister, they're always going to be in the shadow of Thatcher, and it's like, come on, she's been dead for a few years now. Theresa May, she should make no bones about the fact that she intends in some way to sort of modernise and change and reform the Tory party. I mean, it's dying out. It's an ageing, greying party that is literally dying off. It's got to do something to attract a younger audience. Or at least people in their 40s or something like that. Now, I think Theresa May is largely liberal, but I think she's kind of, you know, post-2008 financial crash. Let's not really mention the Austrian School of Economics anymore and its ethos of the invisible hand solves everything, the free market fixes everything. I think Theresa May understands that there's a lot of right-leaning people that don't believe in that anymore. I think she wants to move the Tories more to the centre ground on that one. I mean, she tries to get this across subtly with a lot of her stock phrases. One of them is the just about managing sort of class of people that, I don't know, I imagine most people just refer to them as the working poor, maybe, I don't know. But by gently moving the Tory party to the centre and making it at very least sound like a more liberal party, by doing that she's managed to endear herself to the public. Another thing that she did that won a favour with the public, in terms of optics at the very least, the public sort of views her as the person that got rid of David Cameron, George Osborne, Michael Gove, got them out of the cabinet. She kind of kicked Bojo, Boris Johnson, she kind of kicked him out, delegated him as foreign secretary to kind of embarrass him in a way, I think, but also embarrass the country. I think we all enjoyed watching Boris be incredibly humble, thankful, and almost apologetic about the fact that he was still a minister. Now, of course, Theresa May was aided by the fact that the official government opposition was led by one Jeremy Corbyn. Now, although the Momentum people probably have probably do have a point about how the media unfairly treats Jeremy Corbyn, having said that, Jeremy Corbyn, he's not exactly the best party leader of all time, is he? Let's be honest. He's not amazingly good, is he? He's sort of, he's pretty good when it comes to standing in a field in front of a crowd of people who are mostly high in drugs. But when he's at the dispatch box, he's borderline useless. So, I mean, Theresa May had already six years as a mildly unsuccessful Home Secretary under her belt before she even became Prime Minister. But she did manage to scrape through a lot of embarrassing Tory government U-turns and PR disasters in terms of disability cuts and things, public sector strikes. 
somehow Therese, she came through that unscathed. It was like we didn't really associate it with her. There's always some Tory boy to take the flak. Even when Theresa May made her shock announcement of a general election coming up on June 8th, despite denying for months whenever asked if she would call an early election because, you know, the whole Brexit thing, I'm kind of uh, preoccupied right now with more pressing matters than trying to destroy the Labour Party. In fact, not only did Theresa May not really lose face, Jeremy Corbyn ended up taking a lot of flack for that one because obviously with the Fixed Term Parliament Act, decreeing that an election can only be held every five years unless there is a majority vote in Parliament for a snap election or an early election. Theresa May put it in front of the House of Commons. I want to call an election. What do you say, Labour? What do you say? Are you scared? Are you scared? And Corbyn's Labour voted it through. They could have blocked it if they wanted to. Now, Theresa May, even though she did a complete 180 by calling the general election, we still forgave her. She was still in that honeymoon period. She still felt new. We were still glad that David Cameron was gone. Osborne wasn't on the front bench anymore, and we had, uh, we got rid of those Etonians, and we looked at Theresa May as being a little bit more middle class, a little bit more like us. And uh, I think Theresa May, I think she took that into her calculations. Would she be able to get away with calling a general election despite saying for months that she wasn't going to do it? I think she factored in that she was still in her honeymoon period, and that particular date, June 8th, would probably come and go before her honeymoon period ended with the public. I think she also understood that even though the public generally favoured Theresa May, we were never big fans of the Tory party. Theresa May herself said we're viewed as the nasty party. And she was right, and they still are. That's why she made it all about Team May. All during the election campaign, all of her branding was about Team May, Theresa May, back me. There was little to no mention of the Conservative Party. She was keen to look almost as though she was running as an independent more than anything else. Tried a little bit of a Manuel Macron. However, it has all gone awry for Therese. Unfortunately, it appears her honeymoon period has ended just about a week before the general election. So her act of calling a general election in what really should have been an assured victory, or at least that's what we all thought. We all thought that was going to solidify Tory rule for about the next 20 years. It's all now starting to look like a giant gamble that she might actually lose. So let's break it down. What was Theresa May's gamble then? Number one, basically... The popularity contest, the fact that politics is dead, the public really don't particularly care about policy, they care far more about the public persona, what are they like, I mean if I went down the pub and had a drink with them, would I enjoy that experience or would I not, these are the things that matter to the electorate, or so we all thought, she figured the public wouldn't really give a shit about her terrible record in government, number two, she thought the public would never trust Corbyn with the economy, with national health care, with foreign diplomacy, with fixing potholes in the road. She figured Britain wouldn't trust Jeremy Corbyn with anything more than they would trust Theresa May, and that's because that's what the poll showed. Seem to be showing something else now, though, don't they? And of course, number three, Theresa May gambled that her honeymoon period would last beyond June 8th. Theresa May herself said only a week ago that if Labour gained even only a handful of seats from the Tories, she would consider that a Jeremy Corbyn victory, although she'll probably U-turn on that if that actually happens. I think the uh, the turning point appears to have been when the Tories released their manifesto after Labour's mildly embarrassing set of leaks and launches. I think there was about three launches overall, effectively. But uh, it turned out that Labour's manifesto was warmly received rather than the the suicide note that everyone else was expecting, everyone in the media at least was expecting. By comparison, the Tory manifesto 
They angered a lot of traditional conservative voters, particularly the policy about appointing an employee onto the board of directors. It's not a very Tory move, almost Corbyn-esque. Of course, Theresa May pissed off the pensioners, a.k.a. the Tory base, by suggesting that people should sell their houses in order to pay for their own social care, also known as the dementia tax. I was going to go into a whole thing about explaining what the dementia tax is, but there's no point because Theresa May's already U-turned on it. I think that's unprecedented in British politics to take something out there manifesto before polling day even arrived. So I think Theresa May, in a way, has sort of shot herself in the foot. She made a big deal about talking about the just about managing class and how globalization has benefited a small number of people, but the wealth's not being spread around enough. I mean, when it comes to that sort of line, who who's the more genuine article on that? Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn? She's, she's not going to out-Corbyn Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, she's done this at the expense of the traditional Tory base that, you know, we on the left, you typically characterise as the fuck the poor, what's mine is mine, obsessed with money, right-wingers. Now, one of Theresa May's mantras was the strong and stable leadership. However, in my view, Theresa May lacks the strength to actually just be honest with the public and just point out a lot of the problems the Tories are having right now, particularly when it comes to raising tax revenues. Some of it is the public's fault, to be honest. You know, the public is typically averse to uh, raising income taxes and any sort of raise in VAT. And so they've made the Tories promise not to do things like that. But at the same time, they expect increases in public spending. So the Tories have to raise tax revenues somehow. Now, I'll give some, there's some credence to the right wing, the very popular contemporary right wing position that actually you raise tax revenues by lowering taxes due to the wealthy reinvesting more and things like that. The increase in economic output makes up for what you would expect to be a loss in tax revenue. There is some credence to that. Fair enough. But I mean, it's not, it's not a hard and fast rule that works in every scenario. There are some scenarios where that isn't going to work. And Britain might be one of them. I'm not sure. I'm not an economist. Sorry. And I think if Theresa May was a little bit stronger, she'd be able to come clean with the public more about things like this. The harsh realities. Now, I said earlier that Theresa May calling the election early after saying she wouldn't for the best part of a year didn't really bother the public, except Brenda from Bristol. But that was before this happened. Yes, sir. Prime Minister, if, uh, if you're so strong and Jeremy Corbyn's so weak, as you said, why have you sent Amber Rudd to take on his arguments at the debate tonight? <laughs> Look, uh, <laughs> well, I'm interested, you know, in, in the fact that Jeremy Corbyn seems to be paying far more attention to how many appearances on telly he's doing. I think he ought to be paying a little more attention to thinking about Brexit negotiations. That's what I'm doing to make sure we get the best possible deal for Britain. Um, OK, so uh, if Theresa May is so focused on Brexit, then why on earth did she call general election right after triggering Article 50? Doesn't, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. She's basically contradicted herself there. So we weren't really bothered that she called a general election pretty much to try and kill off the Labour Party, if we're being honest. But then when she made that contradiction, given that the honeymoon period was over, it's sort of we saw Theresa May in a different light, a more kind of inept, incompetent light, which as a Brexit voter has me a little bit, you know, when the, when the referendum result happened and Brexit happened. I was nervously excited, more excited than nervous. And it's, um, you know, not quite changed yet, but nervousness has gone up whilst excitement hasn't. I, excitement stayed about where it is, but nervousness has gone up because of how wishy-washy and inept Theresa May is. So four weeks ago, 
We mentioned a couple of episodes on the podcast. The Tories had a 20-point lead going into this election about four weeks ago. What a difference three weeks makes, eh? Although, admittedly, the polls are a little bit all over the shop. But I think the highest one at the moment has the Tories on a 12-point lead. The lowest has the Tories on a one-point lead. And I think there was a YouGov poll that showed there's a possibility the Tories might actually lose seats. The majority might actually be reduced, which would be absolute nightmare scenario for Theresa May. Now, <laughs> has Labour's resurgence got anything at all to do with Jeremy Corbyn? I would say kind of yes, kind of no. I mean, has it got anything to do with the public perception of Jeremy Corbyn changing? Not really. It's the public perception of Theresa May that's changed. We've come out of the honeymoon period. We're applying a lot more scrutiny to her than we used to. Like, have you noticed the way her mouth kind of moves in exaggerated ways now? And it's really unnerving. I didn't notice that before. But no, Labour's resurgence has a lot more to do with the uh, first past the post electoral system. Basically ensures that there's only ever really two major political parties. And when one fucks up, the other one gets to have their chance at fucking up. And when they fuck up, the original fuck ups come back in. A couple of these polls have got the Tories panicking. There's a slim, slim chance that Labour might actually pick up a few seats from the Tories, which, of course, about a week ago, Theresa May said that would be a victory for Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, like I say, sure, you turn on that if it does. I mean, this is not a highly likely scenario, but I think the most likely scenario is that the Tories extend their majority a little bit, but probably less than half as much as they thought they were going to do about four weeks ago. Could you imagine if the Tory majority was reduced? I mean, how would she not? She'd be she'd be under severe pressure to step down at that point, I think. I think Boris Johnson might. He might have a, one last desperate crack at Tory leadership. How the fuck did you lose our seats to Jeremy Corbyn? I think what benefited Labour was the manifesto, given Theresa May's rhetoric about the just managing and, and fiscal inequality. She helped Jeremy Corbyn's Labour by basically not being the genuine article. Labour is still more associated with working class plight. Let's put it like that working class or lower middle class plight. All of this, of course, just completely unthinkable, even only about a week ago. I think Theresa May's strategy, the Tory strategy, has gone wrong here in this campaign in the sense that I think they were planning on whipping out the whole Jeremy Corbyn's a terrorist sympathiser, he sympathised with the IRA, he sympathises with Hamas and all that. I think they planned on relying on that to get Theresa May over the line. But that's sort of old news, it's kind of retreading old news. The public doesn't care. I've heard that about Jeremy before. And so in the run-up to the election, the narrative on Jeremy Corbyn changed in terms of the media being too unfair to him. Jeremy's become a figure of sympathy. And Theresa May, now she looks more like a bully rather than just the better statesman who knows what they're doing. However, I think um, the Tories losing or having a reduced majority or the possibility of uh, another hung parliament... I think all of that is just sort of wishful thinking. I think most likely the Tories are going to extend their majority, not by much, maybe 15 to 20 seats. It'll be embarrassingly low gains, given just how self-assured the Tories were just only a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it'll be so bad that, I mean, people in Europe are like, oh God, imagine how this is going to be reported in Europe. War shambles. But yeah, it's going to be, she's still going to win, Therese, but it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be a hollow victory. And I think there's just going to be general bewilderment across Britain and the wider European continent about why the fuck did she call this general election in the first place. Speaking of bewilderment, Kathy Griffin's back in the news. Oh, 
Right, so Kathy Griffin, stand-up comedian and infamous D-list celebrity, her own words. She does this photo shoot where she's holding up a blood-soaked severed head of Donald Trump, a la sort of ISIS beheading type thing. But rather than the crazed jihadist look on her face, she's got this more like uh, sad clown expression. I'll leave a link in the description in case you haven't seen it. You probably have. But uh, cue a huge backlashing negative reaction, a half-assed apology on behalf of Kathy which she then pretty much took back a couple of days later at a press conference. I mean, here's what I hate about this incident. Everything about it is phony, fake, counterfeit. A testament to just what a crap, shit culture we've created for ourselves in the West. First and foremost, you've got the faux outrage of Kathy Griffin towards Trump's presidency that led to the photo being taken in the first place. The photo really is just a piece of promotional material designed to garner attention for Kathy Griffin as she begins a new comedy circuit tour. And I mean, it did that. It garnered her a lot of attention. I mean, that's something that aging stand-ups in the twilight years of their careers tend to do. I remember another shocking photo incident involving Roseanne Barr about 10, 12 years ago when she posed in front of her oven wearing, like, she was dressed up as Hitler and she had this baking tray of, like, gingerbread man that were burnt. But whatever. I remember there was a lot of outrage about that that lasted maybe like six hours. Now, I reckon there's a good chance that prior to Trump taking the White House, Kathy Griffin was probably on friendly terms with him. So so does she really hate Donald Trump or is she just trying to get in on that sweet never Trump hashtag resistance movement money by ingratiating herself with the more middle class ABC one West Coast, East Coast demographic? They have a lot of money. Anyway, so the photo comes out. There's this huge reaction to it which is what Kathy Griffin obviously wanted. And there's no doubt in my mind that when the websites and the tabloids and all that went nuts with it, she would have been overjoyed with how many people had Kathy Griffin in their minds at that point. And then the backlash came, mostly in the form of Kathy Griffin having almost all of her comedy gigs for the rest of the year cancelled, but also in the form of Kathy losing a sponsorship deal with Squatty Potty. It's basically a footstool that you put your feet on when you're shitting. I mean, who knew that in the third world that they were doing something right that we were doing wrong? That squat position apparently is better for your intestines or something like that. Makes it easier. So as soon as she starts losing the paid gigs, Kathy goes into a damage control mode. And then she posts this to her Instagram. Hey, everybody. It's me, Kathy Griffin. I sincerely apologize. I am just now seeing the reaction of these images. I'm a comic. I cross the line. I move the line. Then I cross it. I went way too far. The image is too disturbing. I understand how it offends people. It wasn't funny. I get it. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. I will continue. I asked your forgiveness, taking down the image, going to ask the photographer to take down the image, and I beg for your forgiveness. I went too far. I made a mistake, and I was wrong. So, in fairness to Kathy, it certainly appears that she accepts that she did something wrong and is doing the right thing by taking responsibility for it, right? Surely Tom has to be uh, commended rather than condemned. To be frank, no, it's not to be commended. Kathy Griffin got exactly the reaction she wanted, and we know she did because there's this promotional video on YouTube for the uh, promotional photo shoot where Kathy talks about what likely reaction this photo is going to get. My name is Kathy Griffin. I'm shooting with Tyler Shields, who is wildly talented. Um, this is fake blood, just so you know. I won't give away what we're doing, but Tyler and I are not afraid to do images that make noise. Come on. Ready? Yeah. We're going to go to... We have to move to Mexico today. Because we're going to go to prison. Federal prison. Yeah, yeah. Call your dad. Apologize. <laughs> Let's you, me, and Daryl just go to Mexico today. Because we're not surviving this. Okay? 
do this. You just, it's like that, that moment right here, like that's the jail moment. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's literally like, when it's like that. Now, admittedly, the audio quality there wasn't great. So in case you didn't catch it, she said her and the uh, the photographer, they would have to move to Mexico to escape the inevitable negative reaction to the photo. Now, granted, she's being hyperbolic, but the point is, Kathy was well aware that she was intentionally crossing the line in order to, uh, in her own words, make noise. Here's what I think Kathy Griffin is neglecting to tell you. Yes, she expected a negative reaction, but she only expected it from a certain group of Americans who have a favorable view of Donald Trump. She expected a completely different reaction from those with unfavorable views to Trump. So, you know, most of her friends, her co-workers, the sort of people that make up Kathy Griffin's audience. I think Kathy Griffin thought they were going to be perfectly okay with this photo. Respecting of how ballsy Kathy Griffin is to do this. I mean, he's the president. So, I mean, that apology she posted to Instagram, it's phony to me. Going too far and getting a negative reaction is exactly what she wanted. Plus, she only apologized when the photo negatively affected her bank balance and her ability to earn a living. But, you know, more on that a little bit later. So it transpires that no one is really impressed with Kathy's faux apology. And Donald Trump Jr. sort of, uh, he needled her a bit and ratcheted things up a little bit by claiming the president's 10-year-old son, Barron, allegedly, has, he supposedly saw the photo, like, popped up on a TV screen. And then he got, like, genuinely, like, he thought it was real. He thought Kathy Griffin legit cut her father's head off and then held it up in front of a camera. Yeah, yeah, okay, he's 10, maybe. Maybe he did act. Maybe that did actually happen. Even if it isn't true, Donald Jr. successfully got his point across by tugging on people's empathy strings. Made Kathy look more classless than she already did. And uh, a broadcast colleague of Kathy's, CNN's Anderson Cooper, he chimed in and he definitely moved himself away from Kathy Griffin, sort of sidestepped away from her. In a tweet, he said he was uh, appalled by what was an obvious publicity stunt that went too far in terms of appropriateness. And uh, Kathy... Like a scorned lover, she would then go on to accuse Anderson Cooper of betrayal and that he should really have stood by her. I mean, that's how I know Kathy expected two different types of reaction here. Now, here's where I do have a little bit of sympathy for Kathy Griffin. The media she most likely consumes is going to be, you know, vehemently and viciously anti-Trump. And I think she got whipped up into a fervor by the uh, hashtag by any means necessary crowd. And I think she just presumed she'd be backed up on this by everyone in Hollywood, pretty much. Everyone in TV in New York and LA. Apart from those on Fox News, obviously. She must have known that like the Sean Hannity's and the Rush Limbars of the world would go absolutely apeshit. But she most likely thought, fuck them, I don't care what they or their audiences think of me anyway. So her faux apology slash attempt at doing damage control didn't really work. Like she does this New Year's Eve show of Anderson Cooper that she lost about 10, I think it's about 10 hours after Anderson Cooper tweeted about how appalled he was by the photo. She lost her gig on TV with Anderson, Anderson Cooper. I got axed. So it's all going horribly wrong. It's the week from hell for Kathy Griffin. And what do American celebrities do when they're going through the week from hell? They hold a pompous, self-serving press conference, of course. What could possibly go wrong here? So let's have a listen to Kathy Griffin's to Kathy Griffin's I'm the Real Victim here press conference. Hi, everybody. I'm Kathy Griffin. She's going to make some comments and then we'll do questions, okay? okay? I, so I sort of had a speech prepared. So let her, let her my, talk. My notes are by the wayside. It's all off the cuff. Look, um, I'm not afraid of Donald Trump. He's a bully. I've dealt with older white guys trying to keep me down my whole life, my whole career. I'm a woman in a very male-dominated field. Okay, going to pause it there. Stand-up comedy is a very male-dominated field. Okay, granted. 
But come on, man, we're talking about Kathy Griffin here. I mean, Kathy Griffin, you could pretty much sum her up as a Joan Rivers ripoff slash wannabe. Now, Joan Rivers, of course, she's up there as one of the most successful and critically acclaimed comedians of all time. So, I mean, I'm I'm getting a little bit bored. I mean, Kathy Griffin, fair play. She's not the... She's certainly not the first stand-up to say something inflammatory that had a negative reaction and then complain about misogyny as a sort of deflection towards her. She's not the first female stand-up to do that. She won't be the last. But come on, there's never been a better time to be a female stand-up. And I have learned over the years that sometimes when you do stand-up, sometimes people want you know a joke that's out there and a little crazy. So regarding the image that I participated in, that apology absolutely stands. I feel horrible. I have performed in war zones. You know, I make mistakes. I'm an out there comedian. I'm an in your face comedian. But I just wanted to say, you know, if you don't stand up, you get run over. And what's happening to me has never happened ever in the history of this great country, which is that a sitting president of the United States and his grown children and the first lady are personally, I feel, personally trying to ruin my life forever forever you guys know him he's never going to stop i know him and today it's me and tomorrow it could be you so yeah i'm an obnoxious comedian i'm not the most famous person in the world i'm just standing here with lisa i have an amazing first amendment attorney i believe so passionately about this if i don't stand up and say this i'm afraid there's going to be some 12 year old nerdy girl like me in forest park illinois who's going to maybe be watching me to see what i do and this bully and these this president of all people is going to come after me he picked the wrong redhead. And he's he's sort of a redhead, although it's sort of like a parfait cup sometimes. I mean, there's like a red and then like a yellow. And I don't know. I think Melania does. And it goes on and on. Um, yeah, okay. So she, she went on like a First Amendment free speech tangent there. And it's like, I don't really, I fail to see how this is a First Amendment issue in the slightest. I don't think anybody's saying Kathy Griffin doesn't have the right to do uh, an inflammatory photo shoot if that's what she wants to do. I mean, the thing about free speech and this, sorry to disappoint any uh, alt-right listeners, but I'm not a free speech absolutist in the slightest. I'm not alt-right either, by the way. But to me, I've, in every sort of, any sort of literature that deals with free speech, freedom of expression, there's always been this inherent pretext of there is such a thing as personal responsibility. Yeah, you do have the right to say things that are offensive and inflammatory, true, but you also have a responsibility to ask yourself, what is the actual value in doing this? Am I doing this for a reason? You know, be, be honest with yourself. Make it an honest expression. Is this a real criticism or are you just being a dick? Was Kathy Griffin really saying something by holding up a severed head of Donald Trump or is she just being a prick? Free speech is not a shield for you to cower behind anytime you say something or do something that pisses people off. Free speech exists so that there can be a free exchange of ideas and beliefs and worldviews without resorting to violence and without it being impinged by dogma and tradition and things like racism and what have you, you know what I mean? It's, it's just the ideas that matter. Now, this was a half hour long press conference. I'm not going to play the whole thing. But there was a point in the press conference where Kathy Griffin went on about there was this mob mentality going on that was out to get her. Yeah, to a certain extent, I do agree with that. I think uh, I think there were some people out there who weren't really that offended by the photo that saw an opportunity to 
do some real damage and some real harm to Kathy Griffin's career and got a little bit opportunistic about it. I do think that's true. I think she's got a point there. The problem, however, is I think Kathy Griffin's being a little bit of a hypocrite when it comes to complaining about mob mentality. She was trying to appeal to a certain mob mentality, that anti-Trump mob mentality. She was trying to appeal to that. She knows these people, they're ABC1, if you don't know what that means, it's basically ABC1 and middle to upper middle class people who have the highest levels of disposable income, and that's the demographic advertisers go after, because they've got all the money, and that's what Kathy Griffin was going after. ABC1's on the East and West Coast, they tend to be never-Trumpers. They'll, uh, you know, just in in the same way that if someone comes out and says something pro-Trump, you get an army of Trump supporters who will come out and financially support you. And I think Kathy Griffin was trying to do the same thing in reverse. She was trying to get the never-Trumpers to expand her bank account. There's a little bit of hypocrisy going on there, and I am I'm a stickler. I really don't like hypocrites. I like honest expression. So there, there are these two mobs. Kathy Griffin tried to appeal to one at the expense of the other. Problem is, she ended up offending both mobs. What she did was so kind of beyond the pale, in a way. She made some remarks there. Uh, you heard us talking about standing up for herself, though. That kind of rings hollow for me. You can't, you can't say you're standing up for yourself when a day or two earlier you posted this video about apologizing, recognizing that you did something wrong, and then saying, oh, I'm actually going to stand up for that thing that I did wrong. Doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really make much sense to me. So, I mean, this press conference, really, it was just an, a self-serving act of self-pity where the, the perpetrator of an offense, if you will, tries to insist that really they're the victim. Now, as I said earlier, I recognize the crassness, the vulgarity of the photo, but I also acknowledge this is a sort of low-rent subversiveness comedians desperate for attention tend to go in for. It's a struggle for me to consider this anything more than like a much ado about nothing. However, I think it highlights something that I want to talk about at length on another episode, about how Western civilization has committed cultural and, I would say, philosophical suicide, which has uh, left us with a dour unfulfilling and just downright phony society but more on that probably next week now a lot of the people claiming to be outraged by kathy kathy griffin's publicity stunt are not really outraged at all they're just trapped in this world of mindless the personal is political this sort of narcissistic sociopathic mindset and it just leads to this severe polarization where high profile people just sort of snipe away at each other in ever more snarky fashion and what amounts to just a tit-for-tat pissing contest? There's going to be some self-professed liberals out there who will be salivating at the prospect of the destruction of Kathy Griffin's career. Uh, to them, I would have to ask, does cheering on the loss of someone's income, i.e. the loss of their ability to feed themselves and any dependents they might have, is that really a liberal position, or is it just plain old schadenfreude? Because, you know, like, I love schadenfreude, right, but... Just be honest about it. Don't pretend that you've adopted some sort of principled position. Now, I think it's entered mainstream consciousness at this point that the masses are aware that we live in the times of faux outrage. But likewise, it's also the time of faux virtue. And society needs to ask itself, which is the greater display of virtue? Faux outrage or rising above the fray? Is there a greater act of virtue to be able to ignore Katie Hopkins' latest xenophobic Twitter rant as opposed to being in a rush to be the first one on Twitter to point out what an absolute cunt she is? Tough question. It's something to mull over during the upcoming musical interlude. Alright, 
So it seems Kathy Griffin has got herself all frazzled. She needs to speak to Ruby Wax about dealing with that. Hi, I'm Ruby, and I've just written a book called Mindfulness Guide for the Frazzled. Okay, I can hear you thinking, mindfulness, I swear to you, I'm not going to get all wind chimey and sit here on a gluten-free cushion. Basically, I'm here because, well, I'm frazzled. I am a resident of frazzledom. It's my hood. So I'm going to be talking about uh, stresses, you know, not war and disease, but I mean work, uh, exams, babies, and not getting enough followers on Instagram. When I mean mindfulness, I mean some way that we can lower our levels of fear and stress because that's what's going to make us survive. You know, they say it's by 2020, it's going to be stress that wipes us out. So even if you're not interested in the word mindfulness, um, think about this. If your levels of cortisol, which is stress, are too high, it won't just make you stressful. It'll kill you. (laughs) So earlier in the week, I went to a Ruby Wax gig. Uh, Leicester Square Theatre, where she's got her one-woman show, Frazzled, currently running uh, until about the end of June, I think, 24th of June. I think she's doing about five, six dates a week. Now, I fondly remember Ruby Wax from uh, back in the day, back in the 90s. Yeah, I remember like she did a TV interview with O.J. Simpson, maybe about six months after the end of this trial that he got away with murder. So I was on the Leicester Square Theatre website, thinking to myself, I haven't been to a comedy show in months. I need to get back into the habit. And then there pops up Ruby's iconic, just got out of bed, dyed red hair and thought, oh yeah, I haven't been seeing Ruby Wax do anything in years. Now her show is entitled Frazzled, which, although I wasn't sure what that word meant, it does seem to fit in with Ruby Wax's brand. So I just quickly bought the tickets without really reading the full description, which I probably should have done. Because the, uh, the more astute amongst you would have noticed from the YouTube promotional video that uh, played at the intro of this segment, that Frazzled isn't just the name of her comedy tour, as I presume, but it's actually a title of a book she's written about something called Mindfulness. So as soon as I realized the Leicester Square Theatre show was related to a book, I bought it, and uh, I read it over my two-week jury service period that I talked about on last episode's podcast. More curious than anything else about what mindfulness actually means. And uh, it's basically a simple therapeutic method of being able to recognize those moments when you're getting a little too stressed out to bring yourself back to a stabilizing calmness. In a sense, it's being able to focus on your state of mind rather than focus on what actions you're currently undertaking, getting yourself, as Ruby Wax would say, off of autopilot mode. Now, by taking time out of your day to focus on your state of mind rather than always being caught up in the minutiae of, of our day-to-day lives, is how we're going to live longer and be happier, according to Ruby. And she's eager to point out that this is a science, and that the reason you haven't seen her around lately is because she went off and did a master's at Oxford on the subject of mindfulness, which she was inspired to do after having an episode, which is you know what we used to call back in the day a a bit of a breakdown. Now, when it comes to dystasia, there wasn't a hell of a lot. There wasn't much in the way of science-y talk. There were no real PowerPoint slides or diagrams of brain structure and neurons zipping around, nothing like that. It's all done by way of informal conversation. See, we have this part deep in our brain called the amygdala. It's like our alarm system. And when that switches on, all these stress hormones whoosh up. One of them is cortisol. Now, it's a stress hormone. It means that if you have a predator or if there's an emergency, it's really good because it gives you the oomph. But if it's left on too long, it'll burn down your immune system. 
When I came to the UK about 25 years ago, people weren't even brushing their teeth. Now everybody's in a gym seven days a week because they want a six pack. What's the six pack for? They're going to go home and do an underpant ad for Calvin Klein. Now your six pack, it's attractive if you walk around naked, but it's not going to make you live longer. The next zeitgeist is exercising your brain because it builds. It's the same thing as this mindfulness is like doing a mental sit up. It means the more control you have to be able when the stress storms start to pull down that cortisol. So, I mean, Ruby's basic premise is that we can exercise our brains akin to a muscle by selectively focusing our attention onto things like breathing patterns, the sensation of our skin coming to contact with different objects, mostly the ground, and mostly how your ass feels when sitting in a chair, savoring and focusing intently on the way things taste in your mouth as opposed to just doing the old running on autopilot thing and just scoffing everything down. So mindfulness, when reading this book, you get this sense that mindfulness is uh, its like a series of exercises that you can do they only take a few minutes. They're not going to take up all of your day. You're not going to have to go out and join a gym. You can do it when you're sat at your desk in the office of exercising your ability to focus your mind when you need to, instead of just being sort of trapped, a hapless victim of your own life. You have no control over the things going around you, and you can't really control the way things affect you emotionally and things like that. And so all of this exercises your gray matter, which apparently is a real thing, it's like a sort of like membrane type structure that separates the parts of your brain and uh, by exercising the gray matter it makes you less susceptible to being overwhelmed with stress and anxiety now in regards to ruby's one woman show i mean she just sort of walks out onto the stage with like no introduction whatsoever normally comedians will have like a mic off off stage where they introduce themselves but there was none of that she just literally just walked out onto the stage she said hi I mean, like, a lot of people in the audience were sort of mid-conversation in their own worlds, and, whoa, oh, oh, she's on the stage. Uh, on the stage with Ruby was basically just a table, a big comfy single-seater chair, and a bright pink clipboard. Rather than being your sort of traditional one-man, or in this instance, one-woman stand-up show, it wasn't a stand-up comedy routine, really, at all. It was just, she sat there, and she picked up the clipboard, and it was, like, frequently asked questions about ruby and her book a mindfulness guide for the frazzled and it was a little bit it felt a bit uninspiring to be honest like she hadn't really put that much thought into it like she couldn't come up with an interesting way of writing this one woman show she sort of just yeah i'll make it like a q a but i'm asking the questions myself and then you could kind of tell that she's been away she's been away from show business maybe a little too long she kept holding the clipboard right up to her face so we in the audience, like the clipboard completely obscured her face. We couldn't see it. The audience has a connection with the performer on stage that is largely based on being able to see their face in order to make a connection with them. And it's sort of like every 30, 45 seconds, she was just holding the clipboard right up to her face. It sort of created a bit of a disconnect with the audience, or at least with me anyway. Uh, less a one-hour stand-up show and much more just... You know, like sometimes uh, Google will promote books and the author will just come and sit and just take simple, rudimentary, everyday questions that someone like an everyday layman would ask about the books and just, you know, they go through the formalities of just promoting the book by talking about it. And uh, most of the audience there, I'd say they're probably about 60% women, uh, mostly aged 35 and above, I would say. They didn't seem disappointed at all. I mean, like, there was one woman sat behind me. She was just hanging on to Ruby's every single word. 
like she was kind of mind blown by everything Ruby Wax was saying. And to be frank, I mean, I think a lot of Ruby, what Ruby was saying was mostly common sense more than anything. It, was like, it wasn't anything particularly profound, but the woman behind me, oh, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh my God. That, that is so true. Oh, I never thought of that. So she was impressed. And uh, yeah, like I say, it's not a stand up comedy routine. So there's not much in the way of laughs. And if, like most of the audience, you've already read her book, there really wasn't anything informative about the show either. I mean, obviously, that's by design. She wants you to go out and buy it. She's not going to give the whole game away. But uh, one standout line from the show that I do remember Ruby saying was, um, oh, you know, the thing about stress is that it's stressful, isn't it? Okay, yeah, cheers. Thanks. Thanks, Ruby. Thanks for letting us know that. So the show itself is a largely laughless, abridged rundown of the book. And uh, in regards to the book, it's part self-help guide and part Ruby's biography. So in the early goings, we're told about Ruby's childhood and how her mother turned her into this directionless rebel who can't really cope with any form of anxiety. And uh, a large portion of the book, and thus the stage show, is dedicated to how to how to exercise mindfulness as a parent and how to try to get your kids into it too. The book is written in very simple, plain English, avoids technical terms for the most part you're not going to get something you're not going to come out of this book knowing a great deal about the brain structure or neuroscience in general although she does touch on it she doesn't go too greatly in depth but in fairness ruby is just trying to promote mindfulness amongst us laymen and women it's more she's just an advocate of mindfulness than attempting to be an educator it's not a terribly written book but it's just not particularly well written there are these emboldened passages that ruby explains to us are personal anecdotes they appear almost at random and have little to do with the passages that preceded them, which suggests to me that Ruby Wax didn't really know how to work them in organically, like keeping a smooth and steady flow for the reader. She's, uh, you know, so instead, she opted for the more awkward format of, like, you know, peripherally, you see the bold text. You kind of take it as like a warning sign that, okay, an attempt at self-deprecating anecdotal humor is incoming. Now, I've not had a chance yet. Obviously, I only read it about I only finished reading it a few days ago, so I haven't had a chance to go through the six-week course yet. But during my admittedly brief researching of mindfulness and what it is, I have uncovered several testimonies that suggest it does help to reduce the rate of suicidal thoughts. And, you know, so I figured I'll give it an earnest shot at some point. Most of the exercises, there's simple things you can do whilst just sat at your desk. You've got a couple of minutes to spare, or if you're at the bus stop, Anytime you've got a sort of free moment to yourself, really. So back to the stage show. There's a couple of points where Ruby goes through a mindfulness exercise together with the audience. And I mean, to us, it was like, it was a little bit uncomfortable. It's, I've never sat at any sort of stage show, particularly at Leicester Square Theatre, where the entire audience is just sat in silence, eyes closed, leaning forward. I don't know, it was just kind of odd, but I'll give you a little taste of what I mean. So if you want to do a mindfulness exercise now, want to do it? This is the exercise. Come away from the back of your chair. So, all right, so take your focus to a sense. And let's start with the sense that's as far from your gabbling brain as you can. So take your, your focus to where your feet, if you can, touch the, uh, touch the ground so you feel the contact of your foot on the ground. Everybody can do that. And you're going to want to think, but... That's cool. Just take it back to the sense. Okay, let it go. And if you didn't register anything, doesn't matter. Now focus on where your body's making contact with the chair so you feel 
the whole outline and the inside your skin, where it's making contact, so you really feel the effects of gravity. Okay, so just let that focus go. And now take your focus to the sense of sound. So all you're doing is listening. And your mind's going to take you. Believe me, in a couple seconds, you're, you're going to get snared by your thoughts. As soon as you notice it, you haven't done anything wrong. You just notice it without giving yourself a hard time at all because everybody's minds do it. Take your focus back to, to listening. Yes, I mean, you get the idea, right? It's just refocusing your mind is basically what I'd call it. I mean, did you get anything out of that? Nah, me neither, but as Ruby stresses, it's about routine practice. In regards to the book, if you're completely out of the loop when it comes to mental health issues, then yeah, I would say it's not a bad jumping off point. If, however, you're pretty well versed on the subject, you're not really going to get anything out of it. And of course, if you're a stand-up comedy fan, be aware that's not really what it is. It's more of a book tour. But I think she's been promoting this book for about over a year now, maybe like 18 months, I think. So I think she basically just, she's ran out of the bookstore circuit. She's run out of bookstores that she can go to to promote it. There's not that many book festivals you can go to either. So I think she's just kind of now resorting to promoting her book on the comedy circuit under the guise of it being a traditional stand-up comedy show. A bit deceitful on Ruby's part. In my book, Mindfulness Guide for the Frazzled, I'll be giving you my six-week mindfulness exercises, also mindfulness for teenagers, mothers and babies, people at work, but my version of it. I told you, no wind chimes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks once again for listening to me prattle on about just nothing. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on SoundCloud and Twitter, and most importantly, don't get so frazzled that you can't perform your civic duty this Thursday and do the following. Both of us have